Welcome to the 41st episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest is a co-founder, CTO, and head of products at Timers, Inc., a startup based in Tokyo. He was raised in Tokyo, Japan, where he graduated from St. Mary's in 2005. He then entered Waseda University's International Liberal Arts Department. While studying there, he taught himself computer science programming in his spare time, also working part-time as a software engineer for a mobile website firm. Upon graduating Waseda, he joined DNA as a software engineer. In 2012, he left the company to co-found Timers, Inc. Timers, Inc. is a tech startup running FAM, a suit of business primarily targeted towards families as photo printing mobile apps, family, photo studios, and career development schools for mothers. They have over 1.3 million customers and have received 1.4 billion Japanese yen, so approximately $13 million USD, and currently have 50 employees passionately providing solutions for families all around Japan. As a CTO and head of products, he oversees all technological investment strategies, including hiring and management of engineers, and also oversees the app business segment. Welcome to the podcast, Ahmed. Hi. Great hey, introduction. Good. Well, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hopefully I didn't uh, butcher that too much. Um, no, thanks for reading it out. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk a bit about your interesting background of being a liberal arts guy, yet very, very techy as a professional. We'll also mm, talk a bit right. about going the um, Japanese college route. So far, I think most yeah. of our guests have gone the, the U.S. route. Uh, so I'm interested to talk to you a bit about that, as well as timers. You guys are in your eighth year now. And just talking yeah. about that whole process of the startup and off-air, we also talked a bit about your industry being so young, uh, my industry mm. being so old. And sort of, you know, maybe perhaps sharing some ideas in regards to, you know, what other industries can pick up from the tech sector, which um, is just killing it uh, right now. I don't mean to deviate too much, but, but if, have you been following the stocks like with Tesla? And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I've been investing in a, you know, a few companies. I had my stocks, I, I had some Tesla stocks back when I was like 200, maybe sold at 350, 400. And I thought I, was, I made a good amount of return, but look at it now, I'm like, Shh, damn. <laughs> so I'm in sure. the exact same boat as you. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was like, look at these suckers. They think they're gonna, it's going to go higher, and um, it just kept going. <laughs> and so <laughs> I guess that's yeah. a stock for you. But yeah, hopefully talking to you a bit you know, about tech in general, it's, uh, you know, the industry, it's only going to continue to grow, especially with Elon Musk is going to have um, chips in our brains uh, probably by the time it's 2030. So um, <laughs> we uh, right. on that a bit as well. Also the okay. AI is right. The race. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a very interesting future we have. But, you know, let's sort of rewind the clock all the way back to um, the 2000s. And uh, the first thing I noticed when, you know, I was looking through sort of what you've accomplished is you're clearly a tech guy, but your background in university is in the liberal arts department and you were yeah. self-teaching uh, how to become a computer programmer. So my first question is why did you not just change majors? And secondly, when you self-taught, you know, what was the process like? Was this something really regimented that you were doing, you know, one hour every day? Or is it something that sort of organically happened based on your personal interests? Well, so originally, 
I was into computers and technologies, technology uh, from when I was like in elementary school. I knew a little bit of HTML. I was able to write up my own homepage, you know, homepages back then they're called on um, like, yeah, yeah GeoCities was kind of like the popular one. So right. it was always with me throughout my life, but I never thought I would make that a profession or anything, right? It was just kind of like a hobby. But after, um, yeah, I joined Waseda and well, why I joined Waseda is because I, I didn't have a strict reason. I just wanted to stay in Japan. I just like Japan as a society and as a country. And I wanted to keep on with my life in Japan mm -hmm. and hopefully have a career here. And then, but after joining college, they didn't have, well, they only had international liberal arts majors for people like me who can speak English because mm -hmm. the traditional Japanese college entrance processes is a really strict exam, which people, Japanese high schoolers usually prepare for like one and a half to two years. And mm -hmm. I didn't do that, obviously, because I was in St. Mary's International School. So yeah, my choice, I only have like a few choices, maybe Waseda, Sophia, Temple University, ICU. Yeah, about it, you know, mm. top of my head. So once I joined, uh, I realized, you know, it's a very, it's very broad, right? Liberal arts. Mm. And I didn't really have like a strict pillar of which sector of academics I'm focusing on. And I was just going on in my life, I was playing my friends. I had a very easy college life for the first two years. And then I start to think of, well, what am I going to do with all this free time? What am I going to do in my life? And then, yeah, it just popped into my head to go into a little more of computers because I love computers. So I just went to a bookstore, grabbed two books on programming as Java objective or object, object oriented programming books. Mm. I didn't know anything about that, but I just grabbed it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on this, see how I'm going to do in a month. I'm just going to focus on this for a month. If I don't like it, if I, it's okay. If I do, I'll keep on. Miraculously, the, from the first day I opened that book, I did it for like maybe four or five hours a day. I would ditch, wow. you know, I would ditch hanging out with my friends for studying programming. I was like instantly hooked onto that. And then I, you know, whipped through those two books in maybe three weeks, a little under a month. So if I can focus and, you know, even forget to eat, forget to hang out my friends maybe this is something i can pursue my as a career mm. so i started to go a little deeper in that yeah and then got a few more books and then you know also we go on i go on youtube and then there's mit courses to go into a little more of the real academics of the computer science rather than mm. just practical programming because though they're programming and computer science are kind of different fields or mm. engineering and your science is a little different. So I start, you know, I want to start, put myself in both of those realms. Yeah, and then, you know, just start snowballing from there. Wow. So it was just two books that made you fall in love. So then you self-study, and as you said, at a pretty crazy pace, um, especially at first, where you're studying four or five hours a day. Sort of rewinding it further back to what you mentioned with Waseda. So my understanding is some of these schools, if not most of them, when you when you enter, there's only specific departments you can join being an international school student. So if the option was there, you were already, you would say you were more of a tech, you know, IT, you know, CS person than a liberal arts humanities person. That's a difficult question because what before I entered, if I were my, if I put myself in my shoes back before I entered college, I think I would have thought of the computer science departments as kind of 
too difficult for me. Mm. And maybe I wouldn't have even tried. I mean, like, no, I don't know math. I'm, I'm not, I'm not that much of a computer guy yet. So I don't think I can enter. So I think I would have gave up before even I tried. So in a sense, you know, being able to have the freedom of exploring freely of what the computer programming field is like, I think that freedom was better for me. So it turned out better, I would say, yeah. And, you know, at the time, we've uh, very recently had a, a, a guest, um, so it'd be, I guess, seven years, your junior, Alex okay. Modi, who mm. also later on, he actually became, you know, involved with learning how to write things like Java and stuff after college. And, but yeah. now it's a bit more of a friendly environment, right? There's just so many more resources online. Um, there's even little, like, um, I, I can't remember the exact words to use, but there's like, focus schools or cram schools where, you know, you can go and basically. Oh, boot learn. camps? Yes, camps. Yeah, boot camps. Mm. And during your time, though, there weren't that many, you know, ways to absorb that information. So was your primary way of studying buying books at bookstores or were you able to sort of discover sites or were there actual actual people that you spoke? Uh, not much people. Not much people. But so mine, mine was around 2007, 2008. That time is when YouTube really started picking up. So YouTube had a lot more resources and the online learning community was really is starting to flourish. So big sites like Khan Academy, Khan mm. Academy, that, that just started up. And there was, I, don't know if, I think Coursera was already up and places mm. like Udemy, Udacity. I think Udacity is where I use. So those sites were just coming up. So it, the resources were there. It was starting to come up. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't as like major as it is right now it's not i don't think it's as popular but it was still you know if if i go, if you google it it was there and mm. i think i just i was able to google the right words and reach the right site yeah and books too i i, I always loved books so books were always my thing anyways and you brought up a really interesting point about sort of the fear most people have towards going into you know especially computer sciences you said you weren't such a math person and you know you felt like yeah. there's a mental block uh how did you overcome that mental block? Um, well, the interesting thing is programming isn't really about math. That's something a lot of people misunderstand. And I misunderstood until I started it. It's more like literature, I would say. Mm. It's, it's like literature and Lego <laughs> combined. <laughs> and literature, why I say literature is because about how you construct the, each line of commands and that you have to really... And yeah, how you structure, you know, es writing essays is a very, it's a very, it's like engineering, right? You have to think mm. of the structure first, you have to outline it, you have to decompose that one section into sentences. You know, so it's a very, I think it's a very like, it's kind of like construction, it's like con engineering. And in that sense, it, it, programming kind of shares the same use of your brain as that. And math only comes in, I would say, when you would start to use stats. Like machine learning uses a bunch of math. So I'm having mm. a very difficult time catching up with the fundamentals of machine learning even now. But yeah, mm. there's a lot of math there. And also game programming when you deal with physics. That's a lot, mm. lots of math involved there. But other than that, like if you want to make a website, if you want to make the next Facebook, you don't need any math or hardly any math. I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. So even within the field, you're saying there's quite a bit of deviation and level. Yep. And, you know, ultimately, I, I loved what you said earlier about it being sort of literature and Lego. It's just like, uh, 
putting together yeah. those pieces. Interesting. And um, when you go on to graduate in '09, um, not the best time to graduate, right? Right after the uh, financial <laughs> crisis in 2008. True, um, true. Graduate at the same time. Um, that whole process very different. I imagine coming from a Japanese college. So when you were graduating Japanese college, at least from what I hear and what I read, the process starts really early. Is that correct? That is correct. It starts about at junior year. By the end of junior year, I think a lot of people already have their offers set up, and then many people would even start interning at their to workplace from senior year already. So they start, you know, a lot of Japanese students um they used to they do part time jobs during their college mm -hmm. years, but then a lot of them would drop that and then move into their company and start interning there at an early stage. Well, I don't know. Sorry, I would. I don't know if that's a lot of people, but a good chunk of people do it that way, or they just slack off in college in the senior year because they already know they got a job offer. So, mm -hmm. uh, with with you and DNA, then um, at what point did you know that you were going to head over there after graduation? Mm, yeah. So I I wasn't really I I didn't want to really go with that. You know the flow of the Japanese job hunting process where everybody has to wear those suits. You know, have to, you have to wear the dark blue suits and go to all mm -hmm. these like seminars and stuff. It's a very stressful process and it's kind of like treating yourself like one of the herd, you know? Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that. It was just kind of like the rubble in me. I was like, I'm not going to go that way. <laughs> and the company, I was working at a small company making mobile sites. I think I was like 30 people and I was working as a part-timer and then they offered me a job, just a normal program as a programmer. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so I'm not going to, I am going to have some kind of job by the time I graduate. So I can take it a little easier. And then I just applied for a few places. Yeah. Embarrassingly enough, DNA was not my first choice. I didn't even know much about it. And I just kind of like randomly applied for, to go to their seminars first. You have to attend a seminar to kind of hear, what they're about and then you can apply but then I was 30 minutes late to that seminar <laughs> and then I didn't think I, I'm gonna be able to enter but then they're like oh, okay go ahead go ahead you can come in so if that guy said no I maybe I wouldn't have been here now <laughs> wow. yeah so that's how kind of like you know as in taking the process seriously but then luckily they did give me a job so I, and throughout the interview process I showed them the stuff I was working on and my personal projects at these websites I was running and stuff. And, you know, during the interview, this made me open up my laptop and show me their, show me the codes and like, okay, okay. Yeah. I, I definitely feel your pain when it comes to the whole, you know, job hunting process. Um, everyone wearing the same suit. Um, yeah. so you, you didn't go to any of the fairs and no, no Boston, uh, the infamous or famous, depending on how you look <laughs> at it, uh, Boston fair. No, I didn't go there. I think, I think I went to one, Japanese one in Tokyo Big Site is one of the big conference halls. Mm. Yeah, I went there. I think I left in like an hour. I was like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those things are, uh, it's, it's a little crazy. And it's very interesting um, to see what's going on right now with COVID. I hear a lot of it's online. Uh, hopefully oh, better. yeah. That's interesting too. I've, I haven't thought of that, how the process is going right now. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Um, <laughs> so mm. you, you, you're at DNA. And there's a real pivotal moment, right, in your professional career where you, and if I'm not mistaken, two other people, so three founders in total, begin timers. So yep. 
when this happens, uh, was this a gradual process? Was it, you know, years in the making? Was it months in the making? What led towards that ultimate decision? And like many other people who, you know, start their own businesses up, um, were there any trepidations, any worries on your behalf of sort of leading this, you know, DNA safety net? So even before I joined DNA, one of the reasons why I wasn't taking the whole job hunting thing seriously is because I kind of knew I wasn't going to be working as a normal employee as like a, a sarariman in Japanese. Mm. I didn't. I knew that wasn't going to be my life, and maybe it would take me three years, maybe five years to quit the company. And then back then, I didn't. I, but I didn't have any aspirations of creating a big company or you know taking a taking my startup to IPO or anything. I just thought maybe I'm going to be a freelancer, just do web, you know, web development or something. I just wanted to live off my own. I wanted to make my own money, I would just say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I had that part of my, me, I had that vision in myself for, you know, a very long time back when I was a student. And then, so, but by the second year in DNA, I was like, mm, maybe it's about time. I just had just you know, a little itch, right? Mm. Kind of thing. Uh, yeah, maybe it's almost time. And then that's the moment I did meet these two um, business partners. Partners. They're working in a different Japanese company. And then we met through a mutual friend, and they came. They came to me with this idea of, you know, developing this mobile app. And then back mm. then it was just a back and forth, this casual conversation. I was just giving them technical advice. And then one day they came to me. They're like, "Yeah, so we're thinking of leaving our companies, but what do you think? Do you want to hop on this with us?" And then at that moment, well, I gave myself a few days to think about it. And after a few days of thinking it, the, the decision making was very simple for me because I was 25 back then and I thought I still have room to fail. So I mm-hmm. thought I'll give myself five years, you know, if things won't go well, I'll give myself five years and then, but so 25, by the time I'm 30, if things are not going well, if, you know, we couldn't make our startup, if it fails, I would still be 30. I would have a good amount of experience creating mm. my own company, managing, engineer, doing a lot more high-level engineering. So I thought, yeah, then I'm sure I can get some kind of job by even if my company goes under. Mm. So failure wasn't really a fit. You know, it, was, it didn't really sound like failure to me, mm. if I put it that way, if I frame it that way. So I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. It did mm. start to grow, so it's we're in our eighth year. Very luckily, I wasn't. I didn't have to quit at my fifth year. We just keep keep kept on rolling, rolling, rolling. Yeah. Yeah, and you guys are now in the eighth year, over fifty employees. Yeah. And we were yeah. talking off air, you know, a bit how, um, I, from my impression, you know, eight, eighth year is a young company. But then you were kind of correcting me, saying, "Well, you know, the startup world is very." fast paced, fast moving. So you guys are more sort of a mid, you know, mid range in regards to sort of the, the cycle uh, startup. I guess a few questions I would have sort of relevant to that would be, now that you guys are on the eighth year, how, do, how does the strategy change from, you know, your first few years where I assume it was, you know, the first few years was just, you know, do what you can to basically survive. <laughs> <laughs> At yep. this point, now that you guys are a bit more comfortable, um, you know, what, what is the next move for timers? Mm, yeah, great question. First few years, as I said, yeah, just hustling, right? Trying to get our products out. We didn't know what was right. You know, we didn't know what sticks with customers. So we were throwing things at the wall. 
coding a lot of dirty code. <laughs> Very embarrassed to look at right now. But then, you know, as customers start to stick, we need, we try a lot of things. We start to understand what sticks, what doesn't. So now we have, we start to have our business models, but so this is very particular to us. We are a family oriented business. Our main customers are families and parenting. But as mm. you know, Japan is an aging country with a decreasing population, right? So we yeah. are facing headwinds in a very macro level. Mm. So in that kind of environment, um, we are, we are aiming to take our company public. That's been our goal since we started our company. And hopefully mm. we could achieve that goal in, you know, I don't know how, I, I can't say how long, but yeah. yeah. Um, but public, going public is not a goal, right? It's only the, it's the next starting point. As a company targeting families in an aging and decreasing population country, we have to think of our growth in a very different way because we don't have the tailwind of the industry or of the general macroeconomic environment. So we have to think of increasing the value per customer. So providing a lot more broadness and solutions per family, right? Mm. So we start with photo printing, but now we are going to photo studios and schools for mothers. And we have to do a lot more of those things. We have to increase our catalog of businesses. So that's kind of the way, that's kind of one way to go to grow our business. Another way to grow our business is go to international, go overseas. And we have tested in that market a bit. And then we do, we could see some upside, but we just don't have the resource yet. So we gotta, we're going to push for it, you know, in the next few years, little by little. And if that opens up, that opens up a whole new avenue. So, yeah. So in that sense, you know, we could, we could stay as a small to medium business right now without doing all that. We can just, you know, keep on with our, average revenue growing maybe you know five to ten percent per year which yeah. is not bad but if we're going to we're, we're planning to go public we have bigger dreams so we can't rest with that kind of growth percentage we have to go 20 percent, 30 percent per year and um off air you and i were talking a bit about you know how fast the it you know startup venture capital that type of industry Obviously, I mean, we're talking a wide range, but they kind of all have the similar culture right? of very speedy, it's young. Yeah. I guess one thing I would want to ask as, you know, from an expert like yourself who's actually sort of gone through, you know, the motions as well as seeing the industries change around you. What do you think sort of the mainstream industries, so industries that aren't traditionally related to venture capitalists like education, uh, that I'm part yeah. of, or you know, big corporates could adopt or learn from sort of the um, more venture capital startup um, culture. Ah, oh, that's, that's a really interesting question. Top of my head, I think one of the biggest things the tech industry is good at is data. I, I think that's the word. Mm. So why they're growing, and I don't mean data like collecting customer data and you know violating privacy like the whole scandal you see right now. Just in mm. general, knowing your audiences, data is about knowing your audiences, right? Not knowing your customer. And when you start to cl collect data, not like very personal data, but just, you know, what, what are people clicking on? What do people, how long are they staying on the site? When do they get off? So when you translate that to even offline, you, uh, I don't know what, what is the co average commute time for students. And mm. maybe that can be, you know, utilized in some way to 
engage students more in school. And then maybe you can see a correlation of the focus level of the student to the average time it takes for a student, the average distance between the student's house and school. You know, you, when you start to dig in data, you, you start to see all these connections between so many things. And that's when you really start to be able to not only grow a business, but be a lot more intimate with your customers and be a lot more intimate with you know, what kind of offering you want to provide and what kind of value you want to provide. Mm. And I don't think companies don't treat their data as valuable as they should and they don't collect the right data. And yeah, I think that's the biggest part. Uh, every industry can learn from this meteoric rise in the tech, the tech sector. Interesting. And then I guess on the flip side, um, I think Facebook's average employee is 30, right? So if you're 33 or 32 like us, or I guess, sorry, I'm 34, <laughs> I forgot my age. <laughs> We're old, right? We're actually on the old yep. side. So <laughs> we are. maybe I'm stereotyping a bit, but I feel like that also would have perhaps its shortcomings in any, you know, in certain ways, right? When you have a lot of young people uh, who perhaps lacks, lack experience in other places. So have you seen on the flip side, any weaknesses, you know, from the venture capital, uh, you know, just any, any sector, including yours with the startups that are because they're young, they were lacking in something. Maybe a lot less, a lot less now, but well, maybe a little bit now. Though. Um, throughout the 2010, 2000, 2000, I'd say maybe 2015, uh, I think there's a lot of tech elitism maybe I should put it, you know, mm. that the tech, the tech industry is the future and what the, anybody in the tech sector is doing is kind of like, that's like the messiah, right? That's what's going to save the world. That's what's going to make the world a better place. That's kind of the, that's a mantra you hear everywhere. We're making the world a better place with tech. And, mm. but the fact, as we can see right now, is that that's not true, right? Mm. Just, you know, all the privacy things I was just, I, I didn't want to mention too much, but all the privacy problems, data collection, in a, the sinister data collection, mm. and you know, uh, antitrust companies getting too large, big tech using too much of their power, leveraging too much of their power, and mm. not being just not being you know legally, yeah, you know, <laughs> there's yeah. the right amount of justice not being brought onto them for the unfair mm. amount of power to have. We're seeing the darker side of tech now. I think we, I think a lot of people are starting to wake up. The people who have that tech, tech elitism are saying, wait, maybe we're not the good guys. Maybe we're not the saviors. <laughs> maybe we're just like any other rising industry. Yeah, like a hundred years ago, the steel industry was crazy. Well, I mean, maybe even now, too. Steel industry, mm. oil industry, they were giants, right? Yeah. And of course, a lot of, when there's a lot of money in, involved there's a lot of sinister things that start to come with right mm. and then they have to be under the same level of scrutiny as any other industry so i think that's kind of people what yeah the, the shortcomings i would say yeah that's, that's a great point about data collection and i i suppose with the election coming up this november um i guess we'll see a true test in regards to sort of the role or the lack of the role you know social media will play I'm sure people, yep. you know, people will probably write about it for years to come. But for now, I yeah. guess we just have to see what happens. Huh? 
<laughs> yeah. So I said 2015, but I think 2016 was a better milestone I should point to because the 2016 election, that was kind of a big pivotal moment for people waking up to the power, the sinister powers of tech, right? Mm. Yeah, with the Russian involvement or alleged Russian involvement. That's interesting. And um, in 2017, you got the 30 under 30 uh, from Forbes. And um, yeah. if you could explain maybe to the audience, you know, what is a 30 for 30 by Forbes and um, in what ways did it affect your career and, you know, your, your life after winning this award? Yeah, okay. So the 30 under 30 award is, so they nominate 30 people who are under 30 at that point from many industries in the in business or philanthropy or even artists, right? And they pick the people they say are aspiring or, you know, grow, rising and re are representing their industry, which I don't know if I it was, but yeah. And then I was chosen in the te consumer technology division. And I was just, I didn't even know how I was nominated. They just um, tapped my shoulder one day and then we started to go through the interview process. And then I, I don't think I'm able to disclose that too much, but eventually, mm. yeah, they, they did award me with it. And then, so the award itself is, you know, it's just an award. So it's not like I get a trophy or anything. I was just acknowledged. So it's, but it, the value was more of the network I was able to create with people with very big visions, really optimistic minds, and people are, that are actually doing good in the world. And they're very young, well, same age as me. So they were young. Yeah. And it was really nice to be able to connect with those like-minded people who were genuinely try to, trying to do something good in the world and are working their asses off every day for that. Yeah. So I think that was being in that connection. I still have, I still have a group of people, the Forbes group, we have one, and then we occasionally meet up and just catch up, talk about our, what's going on with ourselves and stuff. And it's a really nice, it's just pure friendship by now. And mm -hmm. that friendship I wouldn't have been able to get without the Forbes awards. So yeah, that I'm very grateful of. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty cool, cool thing to see, you know, other international school kids get. Uh, there was another St. Mary's student, actually not too far from your year. Uh, I think it was a Utah Kambe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. One year older than me. And I, I saw him get, um, but is there a 40 for 40 or is that, is it just 30 for 30? No, he was in the 30 under 30 in the financial sector. Okay. So it might've been a few years ago and yeah, I saw his name too. And I was like, wow, it's like taking over. <laughs> so <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's definitely something uh, maybe younger, um, you know, people can aspire to seeing so many of the senpai take home that, you know, recognition. Yeah. You know, as I said, it's just an award, you know, it's just a, it's just recognition. So it's not like, and for me, not trying to be, you know, not trying to be too humble, but I didn't think I've accomplished enough to be worthy of that award, especially looking at the people, uh, the connections I've made, people are doing a lot greater things than what I've been doing at that point. So I was like, I was very humbled in that way. So yeah, I didn't want to, it, I didn't want to be too cocky of just getting an award because I didn't, I didn't think I deserved it. But still, you know, it's really, it's nice to have that kind of recognition and to have something that younger people can at least aspire and, you know, 
hopefully I can be of a role model somewhat. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's a great thing. And I, I know you're being humble, um, which you always are. <laughs> but it's definitely it's a big deal. It, it is a big deal for anyone who's watching. <laughs> and um, it's a great, great, great thing that, um, you know, other people can look up towards. And um, this brings us to the end of this interview hey. where I like to finish off with asking you, the guest, um, what is to come in the upcoming months and years? So if you want to just take the mic away, uh, give us about 60 to 90 seconds about what is coming up in your life. Okay, yeah. Um, well, right now I'm just focused on my company to grow it, to make it a good company, not only business number metrics-wise, but also you know, as a culture, right? I want to have the best people. And yeah, and hopefully I could, hopefully we can achieve our goal of taking our company public and from there taking it even to a greater level. And then also branching our business to provide more solutions for more people, not only in Japan, but hopefully in other countries too. Yeah. And for me, you know, I just love to explore a lot of things, not only technology, but philosophy, literature, anything. So yeah, I just hope the next time we talk, I would be a better person than I am right now, every sense possible, morally and uh, intellectually. Yeah. So yeah, that's, kind of about it on my side <laughs> well yeah thanks thanks for being a guest today um as you're saying at, at the end there you are a big philosophizer i don't know if that's a word <laughs> um and yeah uh, maybe when you ha we have you back on um next year or something around that time uh we can maybe focus uh just specifically on philosophy then mm, that'd be <laughs> nice yeah and uh, yeah once again thank you for being on and that was uh episode yeah. number 41 um Thanks so much for having me.